I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. How with the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome to the Fear the Fro podcast. I disagree with Dan Patrick. People will subscribe. How dare he criticize my podcast? And as the sensitive podcaster that I am, not only will I never talk to Dan Patrick again, but I refuse to report to make his opens for his morning show. I won't do it any longer. Valid criticisms break me due to my crippling lack of self-confidence in my own game. But don't worry, I'll cover that with bravado and tough talk. Like, I won't come to camp. I refuse to. You'll do what I want. It's not my responsibility to suck less. You guys are mean to me. I allude, of course, to Adrian Wojnarowski's now very recent Woj bomb. It happened just moments before I started recording this. Philadelphia 76ers all-star Ben Simmons will not report for opening of training camp next week and intends to never play another game for the franchise. Simmons hasn't spoken to the team since a late August meeting when he communicated this message to Sixers officials. He's since followed up. Simmons is clearly aware of sanctions available to the organization to fine and suspend him, including withholding of salary. But so far, Simmons appears willing to carry out a plan of forcing his way to a new team. Sixers have yet to find a trade they're willing to make for him. I made my stance clear last week, but I think you can look at the stuff that's happened in the last week and see a marked difference between the way two different people are handling themselves. One, John Wall, also a clutch client, has worked with the Houston Rockets. They want to help facilitate a trade. He wants to be traded. Now, in their case, their interests are far more aligned. Houston has no use for a massive $91.7 million contract on the books for the next two years, especially when that player and his usage will come at a direct impact to Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr., Meanwhile, Simmons, he's on a team that has title aspirations, that just extended Joel Embiid, their best center in the league type player, even if you don't think he's the best center in the league. I mean, I would say Jokic, but he's a close second and can be even more dominant at times, just doesn't have the health that Jokic has managed to keep over the course of his career. Anyway, that's a debate for another time. The point is, Simmons wants out. Simmons refuses to report. Simmons is willing to be suspended whatever it takes. So while Wall is at least plain cooperative employee, a willing participant on a team, sadly, that's going nowhere. Ben Simmons, on the other hand, just trying to force his way out. We're seeing the same thing from Deshaun Watson with the Texans, where he's healthy, he's not playing, he has no intention of playing, and as the weeks go by, the headlines just don't even focus on it. It's a place I never thought we would get to, where even the fan bases themselves seem very tolerant of the idea that players can tell their team and their city, well, you're below me. My desires for what I want from me as an individual trump the expectations that come with taking up 25% of your team's salary cap. If you don't support me, well, then you're against player empowerment, and you just don't care about the individual, and you're siding with the capitalist pigs who run the NBA. No, I'm siding with, if you get all your money from the team who promised you all that money, then you give your best effort for the team who promised you all that money for your best effort. It's two ways. That's all my expectations are. 
You doing it the way that you're doing it, Ben Simmons, is not going to recoup the Sixers a better player. They're going to get worse for their $35 to $40 million commitment to you. That's what they get for the $171 million they still owe you. They get you immediately submarining their asset one year in to an extension. One year in. The ink isn't even dry and you're pissing all over the contract already. And all because you can't hit a free throw or take a shot. That's the crazy part. The criticism is you were unwilling to shoot. You know, if somebody criticized me for that in pickup basketball, I'd be like, wait a minute. You're angry because you want me to shoot more? That is about the best criticism anybody could ever give me. That's why I think it's perfectly reasonable to have expectations on a player who signs a contract for five years to live up to that contract, at least to the best of his abilities. And nobody can make the argument that not showing up is the best of your abilities. And we're okay with it. We just accept that behavior from our athletes, and maybe that line of thinking from me is outdated. Unlike the Houston Rockets, who are probably going to be one of the worst teams in basketball, regardless of what John Wall does, the Sixers have aspirations of competing, and they're trying to put a team around Joel Embiid that sends the right message to their franchise player, to their true franchise player, that we want to win. It's almost comical now, looking at what we are seeing from the Cavs and the proposals that were being pitched out in the early summer of, oh, well, we want Sexton and Darius Garland and some first-round picks to, oh, well, we want Sexton and, and we want first-round picks to, maybe you'll just get Sexton. Because at this point, who's in the driver's seat? I don't love this for the Sixers. I would love it if I'm any other team because their leverage is diminishing. That's why if I'm the Cavs, I'm not giving up a package that includes Sexton, Okoro, and multiple first-round picks. I have no interest in it. I don't think it's necessary, and I also think you're bidding against yourself at that point. It's really just a matter of which team is going to give the most amongst the teams who are giving less overall. Because the deals he could have recouped had he not taken this approach for the Sixers, which obviously he doesn't care about that. Sixers fans care about that. Simmons doesn't care about that. It's not that I'm saying lowball the Sixers for the sake of lowballing. There will be someone who will outbid you. It's still going to go to the best offer. But to me, giving up tons of assets, it's not prudent to make a move where you give up all your young draft picks in order to bring in a guy who very well may be impossible to please in Cleveland, Ohio. We need to be realistic. If he is not comfortable existing in failure, how the hell is he going to succeed in Cleveland? He's not going to be a title contender from day one as the focal point of a team. And the idea that he won't hit some obstacles along the way, it's ridiculous. And there is no pivoting off of this move. If you give up Sexton, if you give up multiple first-round picks, if you give up a Coro, that was your rebuild. You went all in on that. So the debate isn't, is Simmons a great player? It's, is he good enough to make the trade that would essentially leverage our entire future in the hopes that he's the guy who's going to push us over the top. He's the guy that's going to push a team that, don't forget, they have a win over under total in Vegas of 26 and a half games. What have we seen from him that makes us think that he's the missing piece? You don't get two chances at making this massive godfather trade offer. Simmons is not the guy who I would do it for. How many do we think Ben Simmons is going to add to that, even in the best case scenario? If this is how he conducts himself, or if this is how people at Clutch have steered him 
to conduct himself, I don't want anything to do with that. It's way too risky. It's not just the monetary risk. It's the risk of him tearing down a team from the inside. And there are no redos if we do this. If you give up Sexton and multiple first-round picks or even a Coro with that, what's your pivot if this doesn't work out? You just traded all of the assets that your team built up outside of Garland and Mobley, but you traded all of the young assets of the future that could continue to help add to this core in order to bring in Simmons, who very well could just do the same thing to the Cavs. Haven't we seen enough in terms of J.R. Smith's tantrum and Kevin Porter Jr.? We don't even like it when Kevin Love does stuff like throw the ball to the Raptors or yell at you know, John Beeline after a play. Those are minor in comparison to what Ben Simmons is doing right now and what he could do as a $35 to $40 million piece on this Cavalier roster. So my argument has never been that he's not more talented than Sexton. It's just how much do we need to see as a Cavalier fan base before we decide, you know what, this is not worth the risk. There are ways to keep adding and get better. Even the Cavs, as lowly as people think the Cavs are, even they shouldn't make this kind of foolish risk for a guy like Ben Simmons. He's a great player. But he's an incomplete player, and he's a complete malcontent. People who want him, who are willing to look at his talent and say, hey, this situation as it's playing out in Philadelphia, that's not troubling at all. That's something that I'm sure will work out perfectly fine in Cleveland, Ohio. They're naive. At some point, you have to be able to take valid criticism. John Wall, on the other hand, that's an interesting situation. He makes a lot of money. That's going to be the big prohibitive factor in getting him traded. But it will be interesting to see, and that both Simmons and Wall are clutch clients, how does John Wall approach this as this drags out? Because a deal may not be imminent. It may not even happen before the season starts. Because trading for a guy like Wall takes a ton of contracts to match, on top of the fact he's averaging about 35 games a year the last four seasons. So trading for him is not without risk. Now, there have been rumors about different teams who might be interested. Of course, Philadelphia comes into the mix because everybody's looking at this shit show. Now, I don't think there's any traction to that. That doesn't make sense for anybody. Houston is just now getting its legs under it. And if they get a chance to offload John Wall, maybe they do that in a scenario for Simmons. But I would be concerned there too because this is a guy who, yet again, is a complete goddamn malcontent. We're back here again with me ranting about how Ben Simmons and Clutch is destroying the NBA because they're forcing their way out of contracts they took just after extending for max deals, basically. It's a great way to operate. Anyway, John Wall. That situation right now, on the surface, it looks so much more amicable because everybody's friendly when everybody thinks they're working towards the same end. But if Houston finds that they can't offload Wall without giving up a bunch of first-round picks or other assets in the deal, Christian Wood or whoever, then they may push back. And at that point, Wall's in this purgatory of, well, I don't want to play for this team, and I'm not going to play for this team. Let's see how it sits in December or January, where you're still not playing. You're getting your money, but you're still not playing, and you still haven't been traded, because your deal is gargantuan. And that's really the risk of these Supermax contracts. Russell Westbrook has managed to find himself traded multiple times. Went to Houston, then went to Washington, now he's in LA. Wall's on the exact same contract. He could absolutely be moved. It's possible to do so. 
there's always some element of taking back bad money. The main deal I've seen rumored has been involving the Clippers, and the Clippers sending Eric Bledsoe one of their two wing bad deals, which would be Luke Kennard or Marcus Morris, along with one of their centers, either Ibaka or Zubac. If Houston got to do that, and if the Clippers got to do that, I think I'd support it for both parties. That might be one of the situations. Now, in general, I root for chaos anyway. But that might be one of the scenarios where I say, well, kind of makes sense for both parties. The Clippers are going to be capped out forever with the Paul George and Kawhi Leonard deals on their books. And they're overpaying a lot of role players who they don't really need to do all that much for them. Marcus Morris's contract is very big. He's very old. Luke Kennard was getting DNP CDs last year. He's making 12 to $14 million a year for the next three years. It's not the worst pivot in the world to take that Bledsoe deal, which has a partial guarantee next season, and flip it along with an expendable wing guy. Because they have Terrence Mann. They took three rookies, two of which play the wing, in Boston and Keon Johnson. They may not need. They send him with Bledsoe to Houston along with Ibaka. They take their chances with Zubach, man in the middle, and whatever they can get from Hartenstein or Harry Giles. They experiment with their own big three of sorts, assuming John Wall's healthy next year when Kawhi Leonard returns. It's interesting, to say the least. I mean, Wall still put up respectable numbers, 21-7, and seven, over 40 games. He's got limitations, but in the context of a team that has title aspirations, who has relatively limited maneuverability with their cap situation, you may not be able to do better than that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with John Wall, but the Ben Simmons situation just continues to drag on. And in the end, I think Sixer fans, I mean, Sixer fans are already livid at how he's treating the team and treating the city. Wherever he goes, it's going to be must-see television the first night that he's back in Philadelphia. And if people thought that the LeBron James reception in Cleveland was bad, Ben Simmons may even be worse because Philadelphia is probably even less forgiving despite the fact that LeBron James is on another level of player than Ben Simmons. That's beside the point. Philly is not the most forgiving city and the way that he's treating that franchise is going to end up putting them in a position where they just simply can't recoup fair value for the quality player that Ben Simmons can be. So to the Cavs, I wanted to come in on a positive tip. I wanted to talk about Evan Mobley's appearance on road tripping. I think I'm going to do that now. I went back to the Ben Simmons well. But Mobley on road tripping was a fun appearance. He came on with Richard Jefferson, Allie Clifton, Channing Fry. It was an informal interview, just kind of getting a sense of what he's about. There were a couple interesting revelations. His favorite team growing up was the Oklahoma City Thunder. They were kind of taken aback being that he's from Southern California, but he loved Kevin Durant. When he was in his formative years, that team was doing damage. It was a far cry from what they are now. But he also was asked, besides LeBron James, who's your favorite Cleveland Cavalier player of all time? Who is your favorite Cav of all time besides LeBron? Kyrie. Oh. Yeah. That's, That's a pretty good one to pick. He had a big yeah, shot. He's aight. He's aight. He's aight. He had a big shot once. <laughs> Every night. I was rooting for Mark Price. But I guess it's too much to expect a 19-year-old to have that answer. He instead answered Kyrie Irving. So, I'm going to let it go this time, Evan. 
I guess I can forgive the fact that you were willing to overlook the guy's betrayal of the Cavs, but I hope you don't get it into your head that that's the way to conduct yourself. Otherwise, we'll be looking at two-week vacations for birthday parties, various other personal agendas working their way into a team that needs all the wins and all the guys dialed in that we can get. Now, speaking of Kyrie Irving, that brings me to the other subject that I wanted to talk about on today's episode of Fear the Fro. I don't know if I even introduced the episode in the beginning. I was too heated. This is the Fear the Fro podcast. Follow us at Fear the Fro Pod on Instagram, on Twitter. Fropod.com. I am Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, lifelong Cavs fan, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, Andre Iguodala. He went on The Breakfast Club with DJ Envy, Angela Yee, Charlemagne the God. Charlemagne the God is one of my favorite outside the realm of sports personalities interviewers. Charlemagne the God is a fantastic interviewer because he always asks the questions I want to know, even if it makes everybody in the room uncomfortable. Andre Godala was in to promote a book or whatever, you know, personal agenda he has. That They seem to run rampant with the Warriors. You got Draymond setting up his post-basketball TV career. You got Iggy hawking a book or some dumb shit like that. Anyway, I'm not bitter about the finals MVP or anything. Nah. Iggy's on The Breakfast Club, and Charlemagne the God puts the following question to him about what it felt like when LeBron James blocked his shot. Here was his answer. Do you play back that block in your head a lot? <laughs> no, I'm just saying. I, I want, crazy. No, I just want to know how hard. Is tell it, you got all that how hard is it to get over something like that? No, or do you ever? It don't bother me. Okay, okay. You know why it doesn't bother me? Like to be honest, first of all, like we take a lot away from Kyrie Irving. Like Kyrie Irving is is busy. One of the most different human beings I've ever seen play basketball, and what he did that entire series. It was like, yo, don't take away from what he did. And mm-hmm. then he made that shot at the end of the game, which LeBron caught up. Like, LeBron's the smartest basketball player ever. Like, I don't have no problem. When Isaiah Thomas broke down, like, LeBron James never had a Hall of Fame coach coach him, and he had so many different coaches throughout his career for him to have the success he had with all the expectations he had. Like, that's different. Mm-hmm. LeBron's smartest player I've ever seen. Like, he'll, he'll remember, like, a, a whole seven-play sequence, what exactly happened. Like, it's amazing. But, like... Kyrie Irving is, you know, and I think LeBron, had, you know, LeBron helped him realize his potential and, and he's been maximizing it. But, uh, yeah, like if a guy like LeBron James block his shot, like he do that all the time. Like mm-hmm. yeah. When it happened during the game, I'm like, that was incredible. Like I said that. I'm like, damn, that shit was crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's just <laughs> like, you know, you just, you just give him respect with respect this dude. I should say, I don't think the whole thing sounds that bad, mainly because he does come around at the end to acknowledge what we all know, which is that LeBron James is a tremendous player. But out the gate, the first thing he says is, don't forget about Kyrie Irving's contributions. It is amazing to me, amongst the NBA player community, how much love there is for Kyrie Irving. This is a guy who's burned multiple teams he's been on. He screwed all his teammates with the Cavs, slammed that title window shut, but then he moved on to Boston, train wrecked that team. And I understand my expectations as a fan are far different. I take the wins and losses personally, at times, I guess, in a way that the players are just able to separate themselves. I've always found it amazing when a great player leaves a team, like Houston, for example. Christian Wood comes there thinking he's going to play with James Harden. And then within a matter of months, James Harden is like, get me off of this garbage barge. I don't want to play here. This team's going nowhere. And he leaves all those guys in his wake. Those guys don't take it personally. 
I get that basketball is a business, but players' ability to compartmentalize that, even when essentially sometimes it's an indictment of how good they are. When James Harden says something like, well, the Houston Rockets aren't good enough, he's essentially telling all the other guys on the roster, you're not good enough. But like with Kyrie Irving, people just got over it. They can separate the individual talent from the way that he puts his individual agenda first. And I guess that's because as a fellow player, you have your own individual agenda that maybe the fans just don't see it because you don't have the kind of leverage that a superstar wields in the NBA. But I've found it hard to root for guys who do that type of thing, who impose their own double standard on the rest of their team. Like not every player can just say, hey, I want to go to a birthday party for a week and have a team look the other way. Kyrie Irving can, of course, because Kyrie Irving's amazing. The fact that there aren't players out there who resent him for that, they're bigger people than me. I guess I'm just a trash person. A resentful, jealous trash person. Don't love that answer. But again, in the full context of the full interview, I didn't feel like he went out of his way to besmirch LeBron or anything like that. He was, for the most part, praising LeBron. But he did another thing. Now this is the egregious sin of the Iggy interview. Iggy gave us this. You, you up 3-1. <laughs> They come back and win the series. Like, yeah, you can't even yeah, put yeah, it down yeah, onto yeah. that one player. There's, just, there's some external factors if y'all want some, you know. If you want some. What's the external some factors? I mean, Draymond didn't, Draymond fi- didn't finish the series for some odd reason. I thought he played game seven. Yeah, but he missed he game, game seven. He, five or six, right? No, six. he missed game five. Missed game, he missed game five. five yeah. Missed game five. And, but that was a home game. We're going back home up 3 1. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that changed the whole series right there. It's been over five years. I don't know if I'm upset or satisfied. The fact that it's still, how could we possibly have choked away this 3-1 lead and what could have caused it that wasn't the fault of our own players? Well, it must be the NBA suspending Draymond. I mean, in order to even get that suspension, he also had to kick Steven Adams in the testicles twice. Maybe those were the external factors you were referring to, Iggy. But by all means, fixate on Draymond and not on what was the most improbable historically amazing run to an NBA title in the history of the league. You would have to fail in 15 other ways for it to even play out the way that it did. And yet here we are, still making excuses. You should put that into a book and go on The Breakfast Club and sell that too. Because people love historical fiction. I think I've skewed enough negative for this episode. I want to go back to what I wanted to talk about at the beginning, which is the Vegas projections for what will happen with the Cavs. I think we can all agree the roster is for the most part set. We have our training camp bodies. We have a pretty good sense of what the rotation's going to be. And now we're looking at what Vegas thinks. Most of us, as Cavs fans, are rooting for the team to compete for a playoff spot. But it's going to be hard. Because if you look at what Vegas is expecting, They think the Cavs will be the fourth worst team in the league. 26 and a half games is the over-under. Five other teams projected to finish with less than 30 wins. Those teams, from best to worst, would be San Antonio, Houston, then our Cavs, then Detroit, then Oklahoma City, and finally, as the worst team in the league, the Orlando Magic. There is a marked improvement right after the San Antonio Spurs. They think that the Timberwolves will finish with nearly 35 wins, a 34-and-a-half over-under for them. Six teams kind of in the cellar of the league, and we, as Cavs fans, are hoping 
that we can be competing for the play-in. In order to do that, right now, Vegas is predicting that the two play-in teams in the East are the Knicks and the Hornets. 38.5 wins for Charlotte, 41.5 wins for the Knicks. So basically, 500 ball is what Vegas is expecting is going to be necessary to compete to be in the play-in for the NBA playoffs. That's a big difference. Me personally, I'm hoping that the Cavs land somewhere around 28 to 30. I think the roster is set up to weather injuries much better, but certainly it's still going to be very difficult. You had teams in the East who added significant talent, and there is a lot of very good squads just above the Cavs in the pecking order. Now the Knicks, they're slated to finish ninth this year. That was the darling of last year's season. You could argue they got better this offseason. They added Kemba, they added Fournier, they added Deuce McBride, they added Quentin Grimes. They didn't lose much. They lost Bullock, basically. That was the big loss for them. But they seemingly could be even better this year. And Mitchell Robinson was hurt a huge part of last year. Now that's a team that Vegas thinks will be struggling to compete to get into the playoffs. You have Chicago slotted as the eighth seed, and they added a ton of talent this offseason. They added DeMar DeRozan, Lonzo Ball, Alex Caruso, Derek Jones Jr., Patrick Williams looked good in the summer league. Of course, Vooch has only been there for half a season, getting brought over last year from the Magic. This is a team that is also going to be standing between the Cavs and making the playoffs because I don't know who we look at in the top eight. The Nets, the Bucks, the Sixers, the Heat, the Celtics, the Hawks, those are all locks. I don't see any way in which those teams don't make the playoffs. But then your 7 through 10 is Indiana, Chicago, New York, and Charlotte. Who's the team that's not going to make it there? Charlotte's really the only attainable one, I think. I can't see a scenario in which Indiana, Chicago, and New York aren't in all likelihood better teams than the Cavs. It's not just that you have to knock off one of those teams. To get into the playoffs, you have to finish above New York, Charlotte, and either Chicago or Indiana. I think Chicago certainly looks better on paper. We don't know how that'll translate. That's a lot of high-volume scores sharing the ball now. I do love the Lonzo signing. I have my questions about DeRozan, but that's just because I am a Levine fan. But with him, Vooch, and DeRozan, those are all guys who can score buckets. They have a lot more size on the wings now. With Derrick Jones Jr. and Caruso, those are all guys who are you know, perimeter stopper types who can complement their high-volume scores. Now, Indiana, they didn't do much. They lost McDermott. They brought in Duarte. Their health is kind of a lot of what held them back last year. But with Levert looking healthier and TJ Warren eventually coming back, they retained TJ McConnell. Lamb could be healthier. He missed a huge part of last season in the beginning. That's a team that I always thought was better than how they finished last year. Right now, I think they'll have a good season. I don't know who they'll climb ahead of because I think Boston looks very solid. Their moves, when you look at them in totality, I mean, they had Fournier and Kemba Walker, both guys who were expected to cost upwards of 20 or $35 million. That was going to be $55 million roughly tied up between their point guard and their shooting guard. And Fournier left to go to the Knicks. And Kemba, they dumped to bring back Horford, but mostly just to free up salary cap space. Somehow, they managed to pick up Dennis Schroeder for one year at just over $5 million and also add Josh Richardson. They brought him in. They're paying those guys collectively 
less than $20 million. So they saved a lot of money there. Some of that money went into extending Marcus Smart. They gave more money to Robert Williams, who appears to be their man in the the middle for years to come. But they brought back Canner, too, who's been bouncing back and forth between the Blazers and, well, the Celtics, and then, of course, Horford. And even though Horford didn't play tons of games last year, you can't blame that all on him. Oklahoma City had no reason, really, to run him out there and in front of their young guys. They played him. They showed that he could still contribute. Now his contract, for as terrible as that looked with Philadelphia, it's really not that egregious. They'll play it out. Salary cap-wise, it's hard to argue that given what Kemba was giving you when you have Pritchard playing behind him, that they didn't make a good move. And I think that's a team that their development was always going to come from within anyway. They have their two cornerstone players in Tatum and Brown. And if you get a little better output from Marcus Smart this year, obviously last year was not his best year, but Robert Williams looks like he can really contribute positively to raising the floor of everyone there. And then who knows how the young guys do. Pritchard could take another step forward. He looked good in the summer league. And it's hard to argue with the depth that they brought in. Richardson, I mean, obviously nobody knows about him, but clearly the Celtics see something they think that they can fix or bring back to his kind of previous form when he was in Miami and he was a much more sought-after player. The real coup is shrewder to me. He overplayed his hand with the Lakers, found the market tapped out, and even in getting rid of Kemba, they're able to bring back a guy who makes one-seventh the money and may be a better overall fit for their roster because seemingly he doesn't have the defensive limitations or the health issues that Kemba has had over the course of the last season or season and a half since he signed that massive deal, which they immediately tried to get out of this offseason. I'm not impressed with Miami. I know there's a lot of people who like the big-name nature of signing Kyle Lowry, but at his age, for that amount of money, considering Dragic is gone, considering Achua is gone, none went to the Lakers, what they sent out, I don't think they're getting that much more back in terms of wins. Now, they added P.J. Tucker. They added Markeith Morris. I guess those guys could play roles. But overall, I don't think that they're really a threat to either Brooklyn or Milwaukee. I don't even know if they'll finish ahead of Philadelphia. And I'm saying that not knowing if Simmons brings back anything good. I'm just assuming that whatever he brings back, along with how great of a player Embiid is, might be enough to hold down Miami in the playoffs. Now, I could be proven wrong. I do love Bam, and of course, Jimmy's a great player, but I just don't buy that the difference maker is a 35-year-old Kyle Lowry, especially since I like Dragic. I don't even think that he's that far beyond what Dragic was giving you, and you gave up Achua in order to do that. So might they be better? Sure. But I I don't think it's going to make them appreciably better to the point where they're a real threat to Brooklyn or Milwaukee. But then again, I mean, last postseason did show you, you never know what can happen when it comes to health. So that's kind of a look at some of the over-unders. Clearly Vegas not quite as high on the Cavs as most of us are because I don't think you'll find many Cavs fans who are hoping for anything less than 28 wins to 30 wins. And that's not a playoff team, but still, that would be a market improvement to last season when we finished, well, low enough that it landed us Mobley. So play in or sink towards the bottom win the lottery again, and run it back next year. But that's next year. Right now, I'm focused on seven days from now, when training camp begins. And then this journey of the Fear the Fro podcast will pick up. I have some new equipment on the way. Kind of an audio nerd. But I leave you with this. 
Sad day last week. Norm MacDonald, dying, went through a cancer battle that I wasn't even aware of. I mean, now in hindsight, when you look at some of his jokes, it makes more sense. But there's been a lot of tributes to Norm. I don't really have a tribute. I'm just going to leave you with one of my favorite bits from him. I loved his ability to just make people uncomfortable, and especially in the context of the show that he was on in this clip, The View, where he was joking about Bill Clinton being a murderer. Nothing makes me happier than network television broadcasting awkward moments that they probably wish had never happened. So this is the Fear the Fro podcast. Follow the show at Fear the Fro Pod on Instagram, on Twitter, fropod.com. We'll be back with another episode soon. I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio and a lifelong Cavs fan. And here is some Norm MacDonald on the way out. See, I, I, don't, I think we should get the homicide out of the White House and get like a, a, a fresh start because we don't want any more murderers. I no, think we, we should just go on to the next question. Oh. <laughs> murderers? Yeah. yeah. Oh, Clinton, he murdered a guy. Yeah, you know, we're not allowed, <laughs> no, to, you're not no, allowed to put out no, no, no accusations without That's a little Charlotte. too far. That's the way it does let's work. Just, let's just go on to the next question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This is not my week. What can I tell you? <laughs> oh, it's not mine either. And I'm being very nice, okay? <laughs> Be a good boy. Now, Norm. Do you never hear that? No. Listen, we don't need to talk about this. this. And I don't want to hear it. And this is not the place to make those accusations. And you're supposed to be funny. Let's get on. Exactly. Get with it. There you go. This is a live show. Norm, but you have been properly chastised by Barbara. So I'm not going to ask the next question. I thought it was a matter of record. Shut up. Okay, that's enough. This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.